one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 420 for the week of Monday, June 18th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer. Glad to be here again. Glad to have you with us, and welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hey, everybody, and thanks for the feedback from a few folks I heard from this past week. Indeed, that was some great feedback that I saw you get in there, Mark. And uh, we're listening to your feedback a lot, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Because in today's show, it's going to be a little bit different. We are going to do our regular roundtable format, except we are only doing one round around the table. Because there were a couple of very important space stories, we're going to cover those. And then we are going to continue with Mark's series on his trip down to the Kennedy Space Center for the departure of Discovery. And he has a bunch of great clips for us that he's going to play tonight. So we're going to let him take the entire end of the first round, which will take us to the end of the show. But let's get right into the very important space news that happened on the week that we were off, as well as this past week. And probably the biggest and most important one would be that China successfully launched three... Taikonauts, as they call their astronauts, into space aboard their Shenzhou 9 craft. It launched from China at 6.37 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, June 16th. The big importance of this launch was its crew. The crew consists of three Taikonauts. The first one is Commander Jing Haipeng. The second one is Liu Wang. And the third, and probably the key person in this mission, is its first female astronaut, Liu Yang. And that crew of three, on Monday, the 18th, which is today's recording date, successfully docked with the Tiangong 1 orbiting laboratory, which they had previously docked to unmanned, but have now docked to with their actual three-man crew. Now, at any given time, two of the members will be on board and one will remain in the capsule for safety reasons, and that mission should last a little over a week. Now, this is really interesting when you – this was something that you were just mentioning before we started recording – is the timing of how long it took them to get a female astronaut up compared to the Soviet Union and the U.S. Yeah, so it was was kind of interesting because today is also, uh, as we record this on on Monday – uh, June 18th. Today also is the anniversary of Sally Ride's mission back in 1983 on board Challenger. She was the first American woman to uh, fly into space. And uh, I, I thought about uh, Valentina Tereshkova and how quickly it took the Russians to, to get uh, a woman up there. But of course, that was for propaganda purposes more than anything else. And now we have a, a, a female, you know, Takanot up there now. But it took us until about 1983, how long, to, uh, for, uh, for Sally Ride to fly. So I thought it was kind of interesting in that, you know, the length of time between having a, a female astronaut uh, in all three programs. So there you have it. <laughs> and it's interesting how quickly their space program has moved. And again, it's very largely propaganda-driven. But when you think about this, in terms of the actual Shenzhou 8 and 9 and the Tiangong 1 orbiting laboratory, that went up last year in September. Shenzhou 8 was at the end of last year, and now they already have a manned launch to it. And at this rate, they're looking at a permanent station 
similar to the ISS except much smaller and fewer partnering nations in 2020. And to think all of this, they started back in 2003. The way I look at it here is that they're using um, a bunch of data that, that has already been accumulated over the past 40 years. Uh, both the United States and the Russians, they've kind of sort of made their mistakes already when it comes to low Earth orbit. And I believe the Chinese are sort of the beneficiaries of, of those learning lessons. Uh, to quote, um, I'm looking over here at uh, a story from uh, the 16th filed by uh, CBS's Bill Harwood, basically saying, quote, that it's roughly comparable to what NASA was doing in the Gemini and Apollo programs in the late 60s and early 70s. They certainly have a long way to go to catch up if that's indeed their goal, close quote. So, you know, again, and, and I'll, I'll bring up a, an article uh, from Time magazine uh, that was written by uh, Jeffrey Kluger, and he, was, uh, he helped, by the way, uh, Jim Lovell write uh, Lost Moon, which later became Apollo 13. The article is, is entitled China's Space Launch. Wow or meh. I'm kind of leaning in the sort of, you know, forgive me for being the, you know, as, as a friend of mine, Amy Title says, the Betty party pooper sometimes. But I'm kind of leaning in toward the meh category here because, again, this is, I mean, grant you, they really have an accelerated program. They've really, really started to get things going. But to look at Shensu, it's sort of a Soyuz clone. If you look at it, that's one. And two is they're sort of the beneficiary of the experiences that both NASA and the Russians have kind of sort of, you know, put together. I mean, um, I'm sure if they wanted, uh, you know, to, to get a cutaway of the Apollo spacecraft, they could probably write the government printing office and get that cutaway. Yeah, and that's that's how how kind of sort of you know simple it is. I mean, even the orbital rendezvous uh, calculations was done by a, a gentleman by the name of Buzz Aldrin. So you know, again, we we've made we've basically paved the road for them, and and essentially, I think the Chinese are, are kind of sort of beneficiaries of that. That's just just my thought. I hate to kind of I'm not really disagreeing, but let's let's take a page out of America's history. When the West was being settled and there were those tracks going across the, the Great Plains that really I, I sort of imagine that there weren't a whole lot of points that you could navigate by and the, uh, the wagon tracks tended to all go in the same direction to the point where those, uh, those old wagon trains were deeply rutted and hazardous at different times of year. Uh, whether you were the first or the, or the 500th or the 5,000th, when you were one of the people that made that trek, you felt like you'd accomplished something. And I think that's the same comparison I'd like to draw the Chinese. They're doing something that only a handful of people have done or a handful of nations has done. Uh, many astronauts, but you know, only a handful of different uh, spacecraft and apparatus to pull this off. And I think they've accomplished something. No matter uh, what the stepping stones and building blocks were, they've they've done it on their own. So... I think they deserve some uh, some recognition for that. Yeah, I mean, Mark, I'll, I'll I'll give you that much. I mean, the the space is always a risky business, no matter what where you, where you go and and what vehicle you fly in. And uh, they, but you know, I I still kind of feel like we've we've they've been sort of the beneficiaries of, of a lot of our mistakes. But you've you've raised a good point. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'll I'll give them that much. They they've 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 come a long way in an extraordinarily short time. But at the same time, that's starting to scare me a little bit. Is the speed at which they're moving, and it's not so much you know a worry of losing any dominance in space because at this point, the only one nobody really has any dominance in space besides low Earth orbit, and even there, there is no one dominance. It's more you know, uniting of all the nations at this point, with the exception of China, who are going on their own. But it's more of the fact that, okay, they have this technology now, what can they do with it, and at this speed, where are they going? Yeah, and since their program is a military program, and it mm -hmm. is not a civilian program, uh, we don't 
really know the answer to those questions yet. We're not really privy to it, and as long as it continues to be a military program, we're not going to know the answers to those questions because that's just not the way military programs operate. Um, apparently, the the Chinese have said that you know we are using this as as a, a peaceful theater and not a theater of war, and you have to go ahead and um, you know take. Them, I guess for now, you have to take them at their word, um, but. Again, there's always, whenever you talk, you know, a new high ground, there's always a military component to it. Well, peaceful theater or not, I've got my popcorn and soda ready, and we'll keep an eye on that and hope for continued success since there are human lives involved. Indeed. All right, so now we're going to move on to Eugene, which, speaking of secrecy in space, this is a story that we've talked about a little bit before, but now it's come to another milestone, right? Yeah, in fact, I, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know this this happened until I looked at Twitter on Sunday morning, and a, a mutual friend of the of the program, Robin Velvecchia, go, went ahead and tweeted this out that the X thirty seven B had uh, arrived at Vandenberg Air Force Base after four hundred and sixty nine days in 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 Earth orbit. Uh, I believe it came down a little after five thirty in the morning local time in, on uh, on the Pacific Coast there. According to uh, an article I'm looking at here, this is from uh, AFP and uh, Google News, um, apparently the, the vehicle uh, was only designed for about 270 days, according to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom McIntyre of the Orbital Test, Test Vehicle Program. He said, quote, we knew from the post-flight assessments from the first mission that uh, this could have stayed in orbit longer. So, so, one of the, so one of the goals of this particular mission to, was to see how far we can push the on-orbit duration. But, however, we still don't exactly know what this particular vehicle was doing up there. We've, you know, and uh, there's a, been a lot of speculation about it, one of which uh, has been, well, maybe it was eyeing the, uh, the Japanese, Japanese the, uh, the Chinese space station. To uh, quote a report from ABC World News, also on uh, 16 June, uh, they, were, they were speaking with um, space analyst John Pike, who is director of GlobalSecurity.org, and he basically said, quote, I think the ultimate purpose of this spacecraft is to confuse the Chinese, to cause them to waste money responding to things that it might be able to keep, and it might be able to keep them guessing. Uh, apparently, too, whatever this thing does, they're going to go ahead and uh, fly another mission, apparently, another X-37B mission. I believe, Sawyer, we talked about this uh, in pre-show. Uh, but the target is October. That's correct. And this will not be a new spacecraft. This will be the first X-37B that flew refurbished. Right. And again, this thing is still a big secret. Nobody really knows what the devil this thing does, does and, and what it's been doing up there. Um, I guess in the interest of national security, maybe we shouldn't know. But all I know is, um, you know, the, the, the Earth-based observers had this thing's orbit plotted already um, within, you know, what, a day of, uh, of it taking off. It's it's still kind of sort of leaving us scratching our heads, wondering what this this whole thing's all about. Maybe it is throwing a trump card at the at the Chinese and saying, "Okay, guys, figure this one out." And maybe it is a red herring. We don't know. It's really a unique program, and obviously the space shuttle led the way for a lot of designs between the Dream Chaser and the X thirty seven B. A lot of similar designs, and yet still no idea what the military is doing with it. And I don't think we'll ever find out. Well, suppose we uh, raise the ooh and the ah factor just one more notch up the scale and consider the fact that uh, quite likely the fact that we know about something that the military that is doing that uh, could well be secret. There are probably a few other things that they're doing that are secret that even exceed that for the uh, oohs and the ahs. Uh, yeah, there probably are a lot of other things that they're doing that probably far exceed the oohs and the ahs as far as X-37B or B is even concerned. So, and it's stuff we probably won't know about. And, uh, but we can probably sleep a little safer knowing that, uh, that, that it's happening, I guess. And, uh, that these folks are, 
are making sure that uh, we get to do interesting things like, you know, talk about going to Mars and, and so on. So Exactly. We'll see where it ends up going in the future. Now, speaking of things that are similar to the shuttle, let's move on to our final story, which is about an actual shuttle. And this is another installment of Mark Discovers Discovery, which was Mark's trip down to the Kennedy Space Center when Space Shuttle Discovery departed for her new home at the Udvar-Hazy Center as part of the Smithsonian Museum in the Virginia area. And uh, let's hand it over to Mark, and he's got a great lineup of some awesome clips for you, so take it away. Well, what I've got for you on this show is some more of my Discovery Departure series of recordings. From April of 2012, I was at Kennedy Space Center for oh, around seven days, and I got to talk to a number of the transition retirement program managers, astronauts, the technicians that worked on the shuttle, the flight engineers, some of those recordings you've already heard, but I've got quite a few of them that I wanted to send out tonight. Sometimes life gets in the way of the best laid plans, and so fortunately, although I've been whittling it away at my supply of recordings from KSC in April, I've still got a few left, so here you get to enjoy some extras. I hope you like these. Keep in mind this was recorded at the shuttle landing facility. We were out on the open ramp with all this noises that you're subject to there. The wind, the tugs, the generators, the vehicles going by. One of the recordings, I'm not sure if it captured it, but there was actually sirens where the rescue squad and fire trucks were departing from the nearby fire station. So please excuse the extra noise. This was definitely not in the studio or in a nice quiet uh, press conference room. This was out on the SLF, and that lent a certain charm to it in itself. Being able to look over your shoulder and see Discovery at the points where Discovery was out there, see the SCA, and see the whole thing unfold before us. Of course, those of you that have seen the shuttle and watched the, the coverage that was available for both Discovery and Enterprise during their ferry movements in Washington and New York, I know you've gotten some real treats. Hopefully this will add another little dimension to what you've already experienced with the shuttle program and with this phase that we're in today. This first segment is with Bart Panulu. He's a Kennedy Space Center Transition Retirement Vehicle Manager. I've actually worked, um, when we were flying, I was actually in the same position now, except now we're, we're just, rather than getting ready the vehicle for flight, we're getting them safe and ready for the display sites. What's involved in, in safing them? I've, I've heard of uh, hazardous things that have to come off of them. And... Right. We had to take the OMS pods off in the FRCS to get the hazardous commodities off, and we shipped those on a flatbed trailer to White Sands, where we actually did the draining of them here, but they did the full contamination and they took out the tanks and different things um, to make it safe for the display sites, and then we shipped them back. So we removed all the hypergalls, all the hazardous commodities, and then what we've done is we've removed all the pyrotechnics from the vehicle, anything with ordnance in it to make it safe, and then we've removed... Uh, all the encrypted hardware, and um, depending on which vehicle it was, this this particular vehicle, uh, Discovery, they wanted the vehicle as much in, in flight-like configuration as possible, except for the things that we absolutely had to do to it. So that's that's what we've done. So we've made it safe for the general public. We're uh, talking about hazardous things. I guess that you said the tanks come out, and of course all the all the propellants and hypergalls. Uh, tubing, piping in the vehicle, is that still in place? That's still all in place. That was just purged somehow? Right. Some some of the tanks and stuff, like I said, in, inside the um, the OMS pods in the FRCS, those tanks and, and uh, hazardous lines have been drained and removed. Yes. Okay. Yes. How about, uh, I guess, batteries, anything like that that's on the... Um, the fuel cells, um, we, we drained the coolant out of those and saved them, and they re, we installed, reinstalled those back inside the vehicle. So those are still inside. I remember seeing Discovery on Media Day. It might have been September uh, last year. I kind of lose track of what was when. Okay. And uh, saw the mid-deck with a lot of the access panels. Are the panels back in place? Is it closed up like it would be for flight in the mid-deck? Yeah, yes. We, we, didn't, we left pretty much the mid-body mostly intact and the, the line 
liner still there, so it would look it's it's white inside, and uh, we didn't pull apart. We did the because of the expense of it. We didn't take anything apart that we didn't absolutely have to, or to change for configuration for the Smithsonian. About electronics assemblies on the on the orbiter, uh, avionics are, are all yes. those still in place? Um, except some of the boxes that were encrypted that we have to remove for ESRD requirements. We did have to pull some of the encrypted boxes out. They uh, they will have future applications in other programs. I remember at one of the press briefings, uh, probably during Discovery's last flight, uh, Mike Weinbach, Mike Moses, one of them made the statement about they were hoping to do some forensic analysis because Discovery being the you know most number of flights orbiter that they wanted to see how some of the systems or components had done with that many days and, and that many launches. Right. You know any details of any of that kind of work? No, I do not know the details of that. But, but I guess it's something that was planned and probably yes. some of it was done. Absolutely. I think they mentioned, you know, looking to maybe take some of the uh, uh, leading edge of the wing and, and you know, look, but I don't know that, <laughs> I don't remember they had any confidence that there would be things they would be allowed to do that they wanted to. Right, that's correct. Because of the Smithsonian having... Uh, they they kind of had the overall choice on some of the some of the hardware that was allowed to come off, whether or not they would allow it. That's correct. Do you know how Discovery is going to be uh, displayed at the Smithsonian? Is it going to be like we're seeing it here, gear down, sitting sitting on the deck? Or? Um, it's going to be displayed in the same configuration that they have Enterprise okay. up there currently. Mm-hmm. So that, that'll be the, a similar configuration to Enterprise. Um, you know, the vent doors, the things like the vent doors and stuff are closed. Um, you know, there's not many things externally that you can see. Um, they, In particular, you know, um, um, commander, pilot seat configuration, things of that nature. They want it in the same configuration that it was for STS-133. So we've tried to maintain that wherever we can. To have the two crew seats up front? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, how about the engines? I know the engines were removed, and they're planned to be kept for a future asset for the SLS. Right. And you've they're got all some some replicas. some replicas, right? And those those are um, they look pretty good, actually. Do they've they? done a great job with those. They call them RSMEs on a stick, but no, they've done a fantastic job, and uh, we've made those replicas. They've they've actually painted them to make them look like they did when they came back from flight. So they look like they've actually flown too, as correct? Well as just yes. Being a visual, right? <clears throat> Very interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things that surprised me the first time I saw a Discovery up close was probably on towback from 133 from the runway. And uh, and seeing how uh, rough it seems the surface of the orbiter is, you think of, of aircraft as being smooth and slick and shiny and, you know, painted. Right. And, and here's the, the orbiter with... Uh, insulation blankets for the thermal protection system um, have you seen it back when it was a, a new ship or? Um, I started here in 1988 so I did the return to flight for this vehicle on 26R and um, I, I did see it after all the all the work had been done on it but if you're actually underneath the uh, the orbiter and you look down the belly of the aircraft you're, it, it looks like a sheet of glass because of the criteria you don't want to create turbulence on re-entry that would cause damage so it may have a rough appearance from here but it's actually very very smooth there's no there's no steps on those bottom tile to each other the criteria is really tight and I think I remember on Discovery there was actually a few tiles that had only flown on its last mission that a lot of the tiles that we see are probably original. That's EPA. correct. On each of the vehicles, the majority of, of the tiles on each of the ships are, are with original build. Yeah, so we when we come back and we do our inspections, if it do, exceeds the, the damage criteria cost, we have to remove the tile. But we do have repair procedures in place. And then, of course, we have some access ports to get to UHF antennas and things of that nature underneath and to do structural inspections. But that would be the only reason we had to remove tiles.
Now, you just said a word that I was always curious about. I don't, I don't know aircraft necessarily, but antennas. Uh, is everything on the underside of the orbiter? Is there some top side? No, the antennas may, are maintained intact. The S-band, the UHF antennas are, are still on the vehicle. And they're, they're between the, the tiles and the actual yeah, they're, skin? They're, yeah, they're, they're underneath the structural panels. Yeah, you would have to remove, on the upper surface, you may have to remove frizzy, felt reusable surface insulation. On the lower surface, you would have to actually remove tile to get to an access port or a door to be able to remove an antenna. Interesting. Um, and I guess in configuration for a ferry flight, uh, the covers over the cockpit windows, they come off probably at uh, the Smithsonian? Um, actually, when we, um, when we pushed the, uh, the vehicle in the SEA out on, on Monday from the MDD, they'll actually use uh, a cherry pick or a JLG and they'll remove the window covers. Okay. They, they do not fly on the vehicle. Okay. Other than that, it's pretty much ready to go. Oh yeah, we've we've had it at, uh, since it rolled to the VAB. We've had it ready in storage for the Smithsonian to accept it. Another another question I'm curious about: uh, once it's hoisted up, landing gear gets retracted. Correct. And is that just a, a manual operation? It's not a powered. Uh, yeah, we we um we do not have any power capability to the vehicle. Um, to we we put on an element inside the vehicle such that we can drop the gear if we needed to but um no we do we'll do we'll do that from from a mechanical standpoint with a box we track the gear we did a, a modification to it to be able to do that using the hydraulic cord it doesn't require any vehicle power to raise the gear each one of the display sites has currently asked about getting a hydro, hydraulic cart for each of the vehicles and that's what we're working on now Next up is Dorothy Rasco from Johnson Space Center. You're going to hear her talking about some interesting things. The money, the people, and the museums. Okay, so I'm um, the manager for the space shuttle program, and I'm doing all the transition and retirement. So after the operations, when John Shannon moved on to the new job, then I stepped in. But I've been in the shuttle program for 14 years, and I was the business manager for the last four or five years. Um, and so... They were like, okay, Dorothy, it's your turn to take it over. Back in the mid-90s, when they, after they delivered Endeavor, um, I was the one that kind of transitioned and shut down Downey, um, the NASA industrial plant out in, in Los Angeles, down in California. And so... We're, you know, the most visible is the orbiters getting to the museums, but there's a lot to the transition. There's all um, making sure that what property we maintain um, goes to the future programs as required. We have over a million line items of property worth $18 billion, and some is being transferred to the program, some is being accessed, some is going to the museums. Um, we also have part of the transition is dispositioning and disposing all of the, the, the software and the IT, and it's all, you know, intertwined between Johnson, Kennedy, Marshall, and then there's the records that NASM requires so that we can do keep all the knowledge capture, and then recordation, um, you know, to make sure we keep all the historical together, and then just the normal contract, administration, the, the um, business side. We have about 1,000 contractors and 200 civil servants, and our budget's about $400 million between FY12 and 13. This is for the transition and retirement Yes, yes. 1,000 contractors. Yes. It's it's across all over. You know, quite a few are are processing the vehicle. I have an orbiter team in Houston, and then you have the ground processing folks here. Um, And then we have all the people at Marshall that are working the uh, disposition disposal of um, any of the tooling and the materials for the external tank, the, the um, main engines, and solid rocket boosters and motors. So it's it's big all over the country. We have over 220 suppliers and vendors that we have to, you know, get all our uh, tooling and, and materials, and they have to disposition all of that. On uh, the boosters, what happens to them? Well, there's eight chipsets that are going to go and be used on the SLS program, and so you know you have the booster side, and then you have the motor side. Um, a lot of the motor segments are going to be accessed, and, and some, actually, California Science. 
centers looking for some. They're going to display um, Endeavor in a launch uh, viewing, and so they want to have the stack. So um, a lot of those segments are going to be excess, but, but we're going to have at least eight booster sets for the SLS program. And then all of their tooling and, and the other equipment that will go with it. Do you know... Uh, what utilization has, has come along for the ARF? Uh, is anybody using um, that? There, there are some Marshall people in there, like we have a Marshall residence office, and there are a few people in there. But really right now, it's where they're keeping um, some of the some of the booster hardware that would be going to SLS. And so with that, with that residence office uh, manager, she has to manage what the shuttle's accessing and what the SLS wants to keep, maintain that inventory, and make sure that she maintains um, whatever hardware they want to keep. You know, in a state that can be used again. Tell me again, how many line items of inventory is there? There, you know, it comes and goes as we as we access and as. Um, but it started at about a million line items, million line items worth eighteen million dollars. Eventually, um, it will be down to where property is handed over yeah, to but museums, I, it's museums and then the other programs, yeah. You know, like all, I used to be the manager of flight crew equipment, That everything that was in the mid-deck, and most of that went to Space Station. The airlock went to Space Station. So, and then quite a few things are going to um, to uh, the SLS when it comes to the uh, Marshall, to the launch side, you know, to the, to the rocket side. And then several items are going to Orion um, for they're they're using some of the tooling for checking out their avionics boxes, and so we're trying to reuse as much as we can. Um, right now, in Atlantis, they're removing um, the main propulsion system, the feed lines, and so they're removing those so that they can use that on SLS. So we're trying. So we're trying to balance um, between everything what we can keep, maintain, and use it for the next programs, then, and then when we access it, um, will it go to a museum, will it go to schools, will it, you know, will it go to other companies? How easy or complicated It's difficult. Dealing with museums. Oh, the museums are great. They are... You're out of agency and... Yeah, but they are great. They they are very excited, and I'm very proud to say that they're going to be displaying these vehicles in such a way that the general public is going to learn so much from them, and so now I kind of feel like it's the next chapter. It's going to be now. We're going to be educating the general public of how awesome these machines are. You know, it, there couldn't be a better place than in these museums and how they're going to, how they're, they're they're like protecting our children. And many many thousands will be able to see them yes. and get close to them. Yes, yes. They never would have before. Right, right. And they're doing an awesome job. It's been a long time since America's had a spacecraft that they could walk up, you know, somewhat close to and, right. and see what it really looks like close. Right. Finally, we got some new hardware that's right. uh, thirty yeah. years old that we'll be able to get close to. And I think I think the general public will realize how awesome these are because you know you don't really get to see it and know about it unless you're up close. And the Smithsonian has consulted with us and talked with us about what's the best way. And they're going to have a main engine. They're going to have like a cutout of the external tank and then have the whole story of um, friction stir welding and how the tank and the aluminum and the so they're going to tell that whole story and the other museums are doing the same thing so it's going to be it's, it's very sad but if the program had to end um, they're going to be well taken care of and they're going to be um, you know exactly like you said so many more people are going to be able to see it and learn from it I've always thought it was just so phenomenal to see a, a World War II aircraft right yeah and, and somebody told me that there was one that was flying in for a ramp display at an airport where I was at and, I, and they said it was the only flying bomber really one. and I said I just thought, you know, if that's the only flying bomber of this type from World War II, it should be flying. Right, right, right. It needs to be exhibited, and we need to learn from it and see. And then, you know, like, the kids, they'll go and they'll look at those and they'll go, oh, my gosh, look at how old that is. Is, is there a discussion about the orbiters uh, when they're when they're in the museums that uh, NASA might have some questions or things that, that, you know, NASA engineers want to look at? Will they be able to? They will be able to.
to. Yes, yes. They'll have, um, and and they'll have, you know, when when Enterprise was, well, it's still at, at Smithsonian, they would go up there and climb in and look at how things were built and, and whether they needed to cannibalize and use something for when, if we didn't have a spare part. So, yeah, that relationship will continue. How about the other way around? Will museums be calling NASA and asking for support as far as um, how to be uh, the best caretaker of the orbiters? The Smithsonian may because, you know, um, we're funding the Smithsonian, but the other one, the other museums, we've given them the POCs at Boeing and USA and Lockheed, you know, um, because once we take, like, Endeavor off of the SCA and its weight on wheels, it's their, they own it. It's their responsibility. So we've told them who to consult with to get it to their museum, and, and they have to contract with them. So they really do to get, get the title to it, don't they? Yeah. 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 Atlantis will stay with us. Next up, you'll hear Kevin Templin. Got to talk to him twice. In the second recording, we talk a little bit about the ferry flights and what's ahead there. I'm Mark Radman with Talking Space. Kevin Templin. And you're from Johnson Space Center. Johnson Space Center. What's your role with the transition retirement? I am the transition manager for the space shuttle program. So I'm responsible for... The orbiters, which is very dramatic, visible piece of what we're doing, but it's, there's over a million line items of property, uh, thousands of boxes of records, uh, the, all of the software that we have. All of that has to be handled properly to officially close out the program. So, What happens with software? Never even thought about that. Well, in some cases, it's just properly disposing of the software. If we have a piece of hardware that, that it resides on, we don't, and, and it, you know, it's going to go out of the agency. We certainly need to make sure it's re- removed. In some cases, we have some specialized software that uh, other programs want, so we're making sure that gets transitioned to them. Legacy software getting reused for, yep. the, for the work that's gone into it. It's kind of interesting when you work in shuttle program, a program like that spans so many years, 30 years of operations and before that even the design. So you've gone from the kind of pre-desktop computer era to where we've all got multiple computers with our smartphones, our iPads and that, and so we've got all these different applications, some of which are specialized, some are off the shelf. Some of the more recent specialized software uh, interfaces with the drawing system, things like that, others are interested in using that, so it, it'll live on and be reused. In terms of the cockpit and the, the, uh, the glass, glass uh, panel displays mm-hmm. and, and the old instruments that we're taking at, do you know what uh, what disposition occurred with them? Were they kept on hand? Is it something that will uh, possibly show up in a, in a museum for people that are interested in what the original book was? We have some of that hardware, and some of it will probably end up in, you know, we make it available to museums, and uh, uh, if they claim it, it will show up in, in a display somewhere. It, it is really a change. I, you, you speak of that, and that brings back fond memories for me because I got to be in the on the flight deck of, of Columbia when they powered up for the first time after putting the glass cockpit in. And that was my thought was, now it looks like a spacecraft, because before it was the old ball and dial and type, you know, when we first built them in the 70s. Again, shows you how the program has spanned different technologies and everything. What happens with your work uh, in a few years, or what's the time frame for what you're doing where your job will change, do you think? The Space Shuttle Program, which our official title right now is the Space Shuttle Program Transition and Retirement Office. Uh, we're in the closeout phase of the program. We'll... we'll uh, is scheduled to end at the end of uh, fiscal year 13. So we we knew that coming in that we had a set window to try and get all our work done. Uh, but there is so much activity going on. There's so much to do that I haven't looked too far ahead. Uh, but the agency's got other exciting things going on. So the possibilities are out there. We've got the space launch system uh, in Houston. They have Orion, the human capsule that's being developed to fly at uh, you know top uh, space launch system at some point. Uh, space station's still flying. So I am an aerospace engineer, so I like to be around the hardware and, and, and do those sorts of things. So those are definitely some possibilities out there. So, so there, there's always going to be more to do. Well, let's hope so. Let's yes, hope so. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you. Any plans, any discussions for Endeavor when she goes out west? Uh, we actually have not started planning Endeavor's ferry, so uh, at this moment I can't say that exactly what we will be doing because we honestly have not talked about it. We've we've had so much effort go into the ferry mission for Discovery and for Enterprise that uh, we have a a little bit of a breathing period after those two deliveries. 
and uh, then we'll start concentrating on that ferry flight. So we just really don't have any details right now. Roughly when do you think Endeavor will make the trip west? Its current scheduled ferry date is uh, September 20th. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Weather's a little more of a challenge here in Florida in September, but... Uh, well, uh, we're actually trying to get in front of uh, what they call the rainy season in Los Angeles, too, uh, oh, yeah. October and beyond, and so yeah. uh, we're trying to... We, we should be able to make that easy, but weather here in Florida, you know, every day you have to check to make sure that you don't have rain or winds or, or whatever, and, and so, yeah, certainly that... Uh, I think has taken a little bit of uh, getting used to the museums have heard us repeat that all the time. We give them a schedule, and we always put all the necessary caveats, you know, things can change the schedules. And certainly when you're talking a ferry mission, that weather's the big one. So. And for, not, of course, the press, but for people that just want to be there to see it, because I know that uh, oh, yeah. people up at Dulles, I've heard a number of people that I see online are planning to, to be there. Right. And, uh, right. You know, These are big events for the museums. They've, they've planned welcoming ceremonies and that, and, of course, you know, they're hoping for good weather on their side as well, because a lot goes into that planning, as you, you can imagine. And, and to even shift a day or two, well, it can be accommodated is, is a, kind of a major thing here as you get close to the end. Next up is Stephanie Stilson. You may recall I've talked to her a few other times. Back, in fact, when she was the flow manager for the Space Shuttle Discovery for STS-133. Also talked to her at Media Day when I got to go see Discovery up close and talk to some of the folks there in OPF2. Well, this time we're talking out there at the SLF, out on that noisy ramp one more time, and we're talking about the number of man-hours, the cost, and how successful this transition retirement program has been. Anytime that I got the opportunity to talk to these folks and ask them just one more question, I took advantage of it. So here's one more short question with Stephanie Stilson. She's the Kennedy Space Center Transition Retirement Program Manager there at KSC. Is there any count on the number of man-hours or time that's involved in getting Discovery or the other yeah. orders in total to, to where they're going to go? Absolutely. We, we keep track of, of all of our time and the work that we do. I don't know what that figure is, but we definitely have a group of folks that that's what they do. That's their job to because that's how we, we come up with the total cost, right, is how many hours did this take. And although we went into this with, with a guesstimate of that, um, we worked to actual, so they are gathering that information. At the end, we'll know that. Has the, uh, the cost of the transition and retirement, has that been less than expected? Uh, so far, it sounds like it is going to be less. So, you know, because when we went into this, we weren't sure what it was going to take to do it. You know, that was the thing. we Everybody wants to know how much it's going to cost. It was like, well, what's it going to take to do the work? So um, so they did the best guess estimates they could do. And then from that, we went and refined it based on the requirements and, and what we had to do to make all the safing happen and the display and so forth. It probably helps having some creative workers finding ways to do things that take less time. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're very cognizant of cost and schedule and so forth. So it's important and we're... we're operating under a much smaller budget than we ever have before. Um, so we're, that's always in our mind, and we make sure we get the job done safely. That's our top priority. And secondly is to keep the cost down and get it done as, as quickly as we can. Great. Congratulations. It's been going good, and we're getting, glad to hear the good reports. We're getting there. Getting there. Thank you. I hope everybody's been enjoying these interviews. Got one more to share with you on this show. But first, is there a doctor in the house? Well, as a matter of fact, that's who I'm about to talk to next, and that's Dr. Michael Barrett. Amongst the astronaut corps, he's known as Mike Barrett. This crew of STS-133 is one that I felt particularly close to because I was at Kennedy Space Center for most, if not all, of the events for the STS-133 flight where the crew got to speak to the press. I did get to interview him on one other occasion, and that was on one of our previous shows. During my discussion with Michael Barrett, I think one of the things I'd like you to listen to closely and think about it is here we are somewhat impatient with low Earth orbit and three month, four month, five month, pushing six months stays in low Earth orbit and microgravity. And I want you to think about what he's saying as to the effects of this and what's ahead if we were to attempt a long duration mission. We talked briefly about that and I think quite a few other interesting things that I hope you enjoy. This is the first of four astronauts that I have. The next three will be on a future show, so stick with us. And uh, one thing that I can definitely say is whether they're a technician, part of the shuttle program, one of the SCA crew, or one of these transition retirement managers that I've spoken to, you've heard already, or an astronaut, they're all people that I would definitely jump at the chance to talk to again and to get to know better and to understand what it's like working 
in the best space program in the world. So here's Dr. Michael Barrett. Enjoy. Um, I'm curious, what can you tell me that's, that's come along in the world of uh, the human, human body and spaceflight in the last uh, year and a half? I think you mentioned you had written a book and you were working on a second one. A second edition. <clears throat> Yeah, we're actually revising the first, but it's a it's a medical textbook, so it's uh, for the general public. It's, it might be fairly dry, but that is uh, principles of clinical medicine for spaceflight. And <clears throat> there's, you know, obviously we're five years from the first release, nearly. So we're working the second edition of that. So in some ways, what you're asking is what's worth putting in the second edition. One of the biggest things we've found since then, though, is uh, this whole issue in zero gravity with intracranial pressure increase and vision changes distortion of the eyeball, distortion of the optic nerve, and uh, that is arguably one of the biggest discoveries in space medicine in, in 15 or 20 years. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's been happening probably under our noses for all this time, and we didn't see it because we hadn't really accumulated enough long-duration flight time. We just didn't have the tools. Now we have some special fundus imagery. Looking at the back of the retina, and we do ultrasounds in orbit of the eye and of the optic nerve, and we have some very high-resolution uh, MRI studies that we do pre-flight and post-flight. And all this has been going on, and we just we didn't know it. So it's, it's uh, profoundly significant because it, it's teaching us about how the fluid in the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid, circulates. And we didn't really understand that as well as we thought we did. And it's one of those things where when you get away from gravity as such a dominant force, you, you find things that you just didn't see, that you were missing all this time. So that, I think, is one of the biggest physiologic things we've found. And it's got big medical implications to us because we don't know what the long-term effects are. And we're flying six months on station. Uh, are we ready to uh, sign people off to go to Mars and spend maybe a year in weightlessness getting there and maybe a year on the way back? And the answer is, well, we're not. We, we need to understand this a lot better get kind of a small sample pool from people that I've talked to and right. to, to understanding exactly what happens. It's not that small. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it's nearly 50% of the guys that go up there that, that get affected to some degree. Yeah. Do you think there's a chance that uh, with, with a lot of the long-duration flights being around five and six months with uh, the Soyuz and mm -hmm. the space station crew, do you think there's any chance that the cutoff is, is around that time where the changes stop and stabilize? Or? Well, it might continue onward the longer that you're in zero-G? Right, and those are exactly the questions we're trying to answer right now. So actually, since my flight in uh, 2009, we now do mandatory monitoring uh, on orbit. So we're trying to get the kind of the serial uh, effect of this. So we're doing the, the retinal imagery, we're doing the ultrasound, we're doing visual acuity tests, and we're doing them periodically to try to figure out what the timeline of this beast really is. Uh, it, it seems to be stable, and, and we have been able to refly some people who had it. But again, just those long-term implications, we, we just plain don't understand. So we don't know exactly why it happens, but people are not functionally impaired. I and mean, we have to wear corrective lenses because we definitely get a vision shift, but we don't have the kind of symptoms that we tend to see in, in clinical syndromes on the ground. That's why we missed it all this time. You know, guys uh, went up there and came down with a little bit of a, a shift, and we thought, no, it's because we're, we're old. You know, we're having these far-sighted shifts that happen with aging. Uh, but other than that, people are not impaired at all. So and, and, and cases, they do return back towards normal? Some cases, after. yeah. But about, it's not 100%. You, you're, uh, I have not returned to normal. You're still... You're still I, yeah, I, I have to wear these for close-up. But I'm an eagle eye at distance now. I used to have to wear a little bit of a vision correction for distance. Now I'm 2012 <laughs> at distance. So uh, it's just it's just a shift, and, and again, people are not impaired. But long-term effects, you know, what happens to people if they fly multiple missions or they fly longer than six months, which eventually we need to show that we can do because we're, we're going to asteroids, we're going to Mars. That's the next step for us. So we have a lot of learning to do on station right now. Any, uh, did you see much of the crew time uh, schedules for men and women that are on station oh, yes. as to how busy they are. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they put in full days. Very full days. There's a, there's a full day of timeline activities, and a lot of it is what happens off the timeline that can eat your lunch up there. And the fact is, it's just it's a huge platform. It takes a lot of tending, and then you're also trying to do work on it. 
So we're trying to get as much productive science out of it as we possibly can, and yet you got to keep your, your ship maintained, so to speak. It would be very nice to have one more set of hands up there, frankly. So uh, in, in the morning when, uh, when it's wake-up time, mm-hmm. uh, of course, ground control, mission control has been watching the station overnight, but how much of the uh, where are we at today, do we have any concerns observations uh, of station status by the crew when right. get started. Is there a lot of you know, eyeballs on certain instruments? Absolutely, absolutely. You, you depend on the ground to do what they can do much faster or more completely than you can. So they're looking at all the systems, which is great. Uh, then you depend on you and your crew to kind of assess the state of your ship. So every night, you did night rounds. You looked at your hatches. You made sure there were no cables across it, nothing free, nothing gumming up, an intake filter or anything like that. And you did the same thing in the morning. So real quick rounds to be sure that everything was copacetic, nothing had failed, that the ground didn't know. And so you report to each other on the state of your vessel. So making his rounds. How's absolutely. How's the station? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Interesting. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you That again. was a pleasure. Well, that's it for me this time around. I hope everybody's enjoyed these interviews. I certainly had a wonderful time in, uh, in recording them and talking to all these people. And we have more ahead. Got three more astronauts from the STS-133 crew that I was able to speak to. We're bringing you those, plus maybe a few little extras that you've never heard before anywhere else. It could be a Talking Space exclusive, but yeah, tell you the truth, the whole media thing is so big that it's entirely possible it's been covered before but if not you may want to come back next week thanks again if you have any comments for or against what we've been doing especially the part that i've played i appreciate your comments your criticism please let me know how you feel about all this good stuff at least i'm going to call it good stuff you can call it what you will thanks again mark thank you once again for those amazing clips And by the way, thanks for letting me come out and play. I had a good time today in the sandbox. Anytime. (laughs) Anytime at all. And uh, I hope you'll do it again for us next week if the listeners want it as much as we do. Yeah, Mark, amazing stuff. I mean, uh, every every time you go over to KSC, you you run into the most amazing individuals and and bring back so much good stuff. It just blows my mind. Thanks so much for all the hard work. Just in case anybody wonders, you know what I'll be doing when we get this posted uh, shortly or when you're listening to this? I'll be doing the same thing. I'm going to listen to our own show again. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth it. (laughs) It's worth it. All right. So as we're saying, that brings this episode to its conclusion. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Always a heck of a lot of fun, sir. Thanks so much. And thank you for joining us and probably listening to this right now as well, Mark Ratterman. We'll see ya. Indeed, we'll have more from Mark next week and then a very, very, very special show coming out on July 4th. But getting a little ahead of ourselves here. In the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 